A random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter, what are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Jim Shooter, Marvel editor-in-chief for a long time and many other things. You are listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our esteemed guest, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, our social medias. Okay, let's go. First off, go on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at The Marvelists. Give us a follow ski, a jet ski, a what have you ski, all that good stuff. Also, follow us individually on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Melnick and Eddie. Yes, I'm here. And I am on Instagram at Eddie9193 and, of course, Facebook. And just look for Eddie Wilson, the one wearing the sunglasses. I think there's only one of those, so there is. you're good to go. You can also find us on a wide variety of streaming platforms, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, Spotify, iHeartRadio, you name it. It. We're the, well, I said it. You said you name it. I, oh, I you said did. it. You did. Anyway... Be sure to check out all those platforms, and they're available for all iOS and Android devices. You can also find us on iTunes. Rate, review, subscribe, five-star if you're ever so inclined, and yada, yada, yada. Also, go on... Let's see, what else are we on? We are on... Below. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Below. Well, that one. But we're on Patreon.com slash... The Marvelists. And for as little as $3 a month to as much as... I really need to turn the mic off at this point. Okay. You can find us on there and... Your mic, not mine. How dare you. For $3 a month to all that other stuff, $3 gets you early access to episodes of this here fine program. $5 gets you two bonus shows... The Fantastic Voyage, where we cover all 102 issues, plus annuals, plus crossovers, plus tie-ins, plus whatever else our little hearts desire, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's iconic, legendary, and even... Fantastic! ...run of... The Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And we we hope we are the world's greatest comic book podcast on at least Fantastic Voyage. Yes, let's start small. You can also find us on... That site with the other $5 show that we have called... You haven't read that? Where Eddie Wilson covers, in a bi-monthly series, comics he's never read in his comic book collecting life. Episodes previously include Watchmen, The Walking Dead, and Marvel Zombies, and The Dark Knight Returns. And in the month of December, curated by the Rob Father himself, Rob Turn of events! Switcheroo! We'll be having me going over a comic I've never read before... Eddie read it at the time as it was coming out, coming into his little hands, and he's like, I'm small Eddie Wilson. I'm teeny tiny, and I'm reading a comic book that's about as big as my torso. Is that what? Re- no. Probably. You might have said that. You might have thought that. I seriously doubt that. Well, then, he didn't do that, ladies and gentlemen. It's all about the little guys. And speaking of the little guys, the Micronauts. We're going to be covering the first 12 issues of Bill Mantlo and Michael Goldman's legendary run on that series and trust me ladies and gentlemen it is a legendary run it's something that you should check out if you have the opportunity 
And of course, go to belowthecollar.com slash themarvelists and get our Dad Joke Immune t-shirt because God willing, if you've made it this far, you are in fact Dad, Dad joke, joke Immune. I like how you said it a little bit slower so I could catch up to him on this one this time. Thank you. You were coordinating it like a conductor with the almost Aww. with a baton with your two hands hey, up and down, up and down. Bop, 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 bop. I'm, I'm dribbling basketballs. I'm with the Harlem Globetrotters now. No, you're not. I don't know. How dare you? <laughs> anyway, we are joined with legendary comic creator, legendary comic writer, legendary comic everything, including the world's tallest editor-in-chief. He's a legend. We are joined with... The one, the only, Jim Shooter. Thank you so much, Jim. Appreciate you being with us. Uh, my pleasure. And this was this is actually our second interview we've ever done with you. This The first one was back at Eternal Con 2018. It was me just doing it solo, and I remember talking to you afterwards, and you said, yes, I want to do the show again. We eventually finally were able to figure out a way to get this to happen, and I've been wanting to make this happen because you're responsible for so much of Eddie Wilson's childhood. Right, Eddie? <laughs> you know, right. that's that's really a big shot to to the man already. you got to just go easy <laughs> on him, will you please, Melnick? <laughs> Holy, put no pressure here. Gee willikers. Well, I think what he means by that is simply that I recall growing up reading comic books in the 70s and the 80s and seeing your name at the bottom of a lot of Marvel comics and, of course, 575 Park Avenue South. You know, the, and, and no, other things it was 575 that. Madison Avenue, and then it was 387 Park Avenue South. But, oh, but see, I, I melded them. We just crushed Eddie Wilson's childhood. There we go. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be fine. Part of it's still intact. Thank you very much. So to hear that, you know, and I like, wait, I know that name and, you know, a long time doing what you did. And so it's just a really thank you for all you've done all throughout those years and, oh, uh, you. you know, being That's being nice. with us and happy. I know it's it's a couple months removed, but happy belated birthday. Oh, now, one of the things that I was able to experience was being able to go back to cons and yourself. I've been seeing you on a lot of lineups in conventions in recent memory and what is it like returning to the conventions in these uncertain, uneasy times? Yeah, I, I got uh, a hyperactive agent, and she, I mean, that's how she makes her living. Right? And, uh, she books me for more shows than I really need or want. <laughs> but, I mean, I enjoy them once I'm there because traveling sucks, you know. And uh, um, so I, I've done a bunch this year. It's nice. I mean, I, I for years I didn't do any conventions because I, I wasn't. Uh, owning a publishing company or anything so i didn't have anything to promote really and uh couldn't see just like taking a few days off from work and going someplace and sitting at a table for you know i mean i just didn't have the time so uh then i got talked into it by uh uh this agent who was organizing a, a secret wars reunion tour with mike Zeck, john Beatty. He said, you gotta you know help him you know and i said you know i uh, no, no thanks. But uh, he said, come on, y'all, it's fine. You know, <laughs> I hadn't seen Mike or John for a long time. I said, no, well, all right, I'll do one. And so I did one, and it was fun. We had a great time. And, uh, and uh, those guys are great. I mean, they're just wonderful people. And, and uh, so we ended up doing more. And, and then the invitations just kept coming. That's a different agent than I have now. But, I mean, uh, the one I have now is, like I said, you know, drinks too much coffee or and when I was at that show, one of the things, and I've told you this before at the, at uh, New York Comic Con 2021, my biggest takeaway when I see you at conventions is you have your little uh, your little uh, portfolio showcasing all of the talent involved in 
your tenure at Marvel Comics and just in comics in general. And I love watching you talk about, you know, creators like Bill Sienkiewicz, Frank Miller. Oh, yeah. And just yeah. the way you talk about them like you're a proud dad, and I love everything about <laughs> that. They don't need me to be a dad, but no, I, they, uh, that, that show-and-tell material has expanded now. It, it takes up it's as much as I can carry, number one. Mm-hmm. You know, if I had any more of the suitcase, it'd be overweight. Number two, it's, it fills a whole full-size, you know, eight-foot table. And uh, I don't sell anything. It's all just show-and-tell, and I have... You know, letters from Stan and, you know, all kinds of funny memos and pictures and a lot of books, you know, showing, as you say, showcasing the talent we had because we had the best team ever assembled. And, uh, and you know, they, they, we, they, they just did, they knocked that out of the park. They did a great job. Jim, I tried to do some quick uh, Wikipedia reading biography-wise on yourself just to at least sound like I know what I'm talking about. But in the beginning of 78... Becoming Marvel's ninth editor-in-chief, and then I saw, oh, and having a nine-year tenure in that position. And I guess part of it was maybe, I don't know, being in the right place at the right time. The circumstances were right. Stan Lee went to L.A. to a better no, overseas. No, that, that is all wrong. Oh, Everything that? you just said is wrong. Okay, let's start from the beginning. Where do I go? All right, there were six. I'm the sixth editor-in-chief. Oh, boy. Stan did not call himself editor-in-chief. He called himself editor. Roy was the first. Len was the second. Mar was the third. Jerry was there for three weeks. Uh, Archie Goodwin, and then me. And that's it. That's also, it. I, was, I was there for more than nine years. I was there as two years as editor and like nine and a half years as editor-in-chief. Mm-hmm. But I was still representing Marvel. I still represented, I represented Marvel on a, a PR trip to London. I represented Marvel at the, in the fall at a... Uh, um, with World Con in Brighton, England, and I was hired as a, as a uh, consultant to create the balloon and float for the Macy's parades. I was still kind of, you know, working in Marvel and supervising stuff, even though they hated me. Well, that's probably something you didn't see coming. Was designing that for for a parade? Well, I mean, I, that's a funny story. I mean, uh, after Marvel was bought by. Um, New World Pictures, which then changed their name to New World Entertainment, and I left. I made them fire me, so I get my severance. Um, uh, they uh, New World was all into like you know let's you know let's let's do pro- more promotion, let's be more public. So they decided they wanted to have a float and a balloon in the Macy's parade. Now the way that works is that is that uh, Macy's has a balloon shop. I think it's in Jersey City. And they make the sculpture of the balloon there, and then they send it to Akron, Ohio, and that's where the balloon is actually made. Um, uh, so anyway, they they uh, they have a, a very good sculptor there, and um, so I get this call from Joe Calamari, and he says he says uh, we need help. He says this this isn't working out, and uh, so I said, well, yeah, okay, sure, you know, they're paying me fine. Um, so anyway, I drove out to the Jersey City place with Joe Calamari, and on the way, he said, well, I had John Romita come out here. He said, that just, he couldn't make, he didn't help, you know. And and he starts talking about, like, oh, John, he can probably only work with two-dimensional stuff, you know, even drawings and things like that. He probably just can't work on three-dimensional. He said, but you were, you were always good with the toys and everything. You really understood. 
And I thought, you, you're crazy because John Romita can do anything, and I don't know why he wasn't doing this. But anyway, so I get there and I find out why John wasn't uh, effective. This skulker they had, the ego of the size of Montana, <laughs> and um, and uh, he, you know, when I walked in, they had a sculpture he made of Spider-Man, and he had Casper the Ghost proportions. He was all bunched up. He looked like Spider-Baby taking an extremely difficult poop. <laughs> and, and it, you know, it just, that's it's all wrong, you know? So I started telling him, I said, the proportions are all wrong. He doesn't look like he's crawling. This arm forward, that leg back, you know? And, uh, um, and, the, and uh, the sculptor, he says, <laughs> you just don't understand. We have to mask the gas cells. This thing has to fly. You don't know what you're talking about, you know. And I said, hmm. I looked around the room. They had a sculpture of Ronald McDonald doing a one-hand handstand. I said, if you can do that, mm. you can do this. I said, this has to change. The proportions are all wrong. You know, it has to be muscular, adult proportions, you know, much smaller head. And the guy's like, well, just, I'd have to cut the frame. And I'm thinking, there's a frame? And I said, yes, you have to cut the frame. <laughs> I don't know what the hell I'm doing. But uh, so anyway, I, you know, uh, like, then I realized John is the nicest man in the world. Okay, John Romita is the nicest man in the world. And John has tremendous respect for other artists. He's, he's, he's a really sweet guy, and he has a lot of respect for it. So another artist was telling him it can't be done. John wasn't going to argue with him. They had to bring in the bad cop. And so I said, no. I said, no, you can do it. So I took a couple trips, but uh, finally we got it looking kind of like Spider-Man. And, you know, reasonably the right proportions and stuff, and in a crawling pose and, and, and everything. And, uh, and then I told the guy, I said, Don't, do not even attempt the webs. Don't even try it. I said, we'll get John back here. And we did. We got John back. You know, well, I wasn't there when he did it. But when he came back, and he drew the webs on the sculpture, and he can work in any dimensions you want. You know, I mean, he can do it. Um, John's a genius. Uh, he's tremendous. Anyway, so the balloon uh, was successful. And then so then uh, they didn't really have an idea for the float. And so uh, I think worked with the Macy's people at Macy's. They have offices there where they design floats. And I came up with a cross-section of New York City. So you can see, like, underground, Dr. Doom has a secret laboratory, and the lizards crawling around the sewers. And, and there's the Empire State Building and the Silver Surfers on top of it, and Dr. Strange's house and all this stuff. And I asked the guy, I said, can there be a building, and the Hulk pushes on it, and it starts to topple, and then it comes back? I said, yeah, we can do that. And they did it. It was great. And so they had all these actors on the float playing Spider-Man, Silver Server, whoever. And then they had all these other costume actors walking alongside the float. It was one of the big hits of the parade. And uh, um, so that worked out pretty well. So I was still working for Marvel, but uh, it was in a you know kind of off stage. Now, in regards to Spider-Man, just you know, speaking of Spider-Man, I thought I'd throw this question out there. This is from Chad of HorrorMovieBarbecue.com. Were you present for any direct dealings with Menahem Golem, uh, Golan of Canon Films when negotiating the production of Captain America and Spider-Man? No. No, I knew him, but I said about him, but I wasn't there when they were negotiating. It, it's kind of wild because like, you see the evolution of all of this stuff. And did you ever expect to see Marvel go from, you know, 
the level they were with those kind of movies all the way to what they are now. Yes, I did, in fact. Um, and, uh, well, I'll tell you what. When I was hired as editor-in-chief, Marvel was dying. We were losing money. Uh, everyone else in the industry was dying, too. And the industry was uh, like on its last legs. And so uh, when I was hired, the president of the company, he said to me, uh, your job is to preside over the death of Marvel Comics and not try not to lose too much money until I get us into other businesses, like children's books, animation. And I said, you're so wrong. I said, I said this, this can be big, and we can make it big. I said, We're a long way from there, but we can start. It's like, oh, baloney, you know? And I, I said, no, you're, we're, we're right on the edge of, of something wonderful happening here, you know? And I, I said, I said it's going to take time, but we can start. And so uh, he says, he's, do whatever you want. Just try not to lose money. Well, do whatever you want. It's a pretty free hand. Mm. And I reported to the president, and there was no nobody could overrule me but him. And... Uh, so I, uh, I started, and I, I, I knew there was all this possibility for exploitation of these characters, none of which had been done. I mean, they, they just uh, they did some stupid deals and some stupid bad things, but, but they didn't really ever you know, approach the potential. And when I was editor-in-chief for the first couple of months, uh, a month or two into it, um, that's when the first Superman movie came out, the Christopher Reeves one, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I, I, it got good reviews. It was a hit. It was packed. You couldn't even get in. And so I said, ah, it's starting, you know. <laughs> and so I took, I told everybody, you all be here at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Everybody, because, you know, freelancers, I mean, um, was, um, creative guys straggling late all the time. I said, no, be here at 9. We're going to the movies. And because the only show you could get into was the very first one. And so I took our 35, 40 people, we walked over to the theater, and I told them, this is a watershed. This is an important thing. We need to see this, you know. So, so we got in, I bought everybody popcorn, and, and, and we uh, watched the movie. It was pretty good. It was pretty good. That was the and so we, we went out of there, you know, I, I said, I said this, this is a moment in history you need to remember. And we, we went back to the office, and as we're walking in, Stan, who was still in New York at that time, he didn't have anything to do with the comics, but he was still in New York, you know, doing the animation, TV, movie stuff. And um, he's marching down the hall, and he says, where were you? And I said, I took everybody to see Superman. He said, and you didn't ask me? He was like brokenhearted. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I said, well, you know, next time I'll know. Okay. I didn't think he'd be interested, but he was. How was the popcorn, and, by the way? Anyway, so I had, I, I knew it was, was going to be big. And you talk about uh, Golan and all those things. First of all, those people were third string at best. Number two, the guy who was running the licensing of the movies, he thought Amazing Spider-Man was different character than Spectacular Spider-Man. Oh, he would license Spider-Man to different companies, and they're all assuming everybody. And it was a disaster. See, now I'm just imagining the whole thing of like, and th- there's this third one, a web of what is oh, the, the book about the web? The webs have its own comic now. Good for them. Yeah, no, it's it, it, you know, none of those guys upstairs had ever opened a comic book in their life. The president of the company had never opened a comic book in his life, and he never intended to. I had one executive, a licensing lady, call me up, and, and she was thrilled because she just made a great deal for Wonder Woman. I said, Gail, we don't own. Wonder oh God! Woman. What do you mean? <laughs> you know, 
Why did they call me? I said, because we're Marvel. We're dominating the market. Everybody thinks we're comics. And when comics call Marvel. I said, call the D.C. lady and tell her you teed up the deal for her. Make it like you did her a favor. You know? <clears throat> and uh, she said, I can't believe we don't know more. Yeah, well, why don't you open a comic book someday? <laughs> anyway. Well, there's at least two stories I didn't expect we would get from that. Sorry. No, not at all. Are you kidding me? That was that you was. You get me great. going, see, and then. I think it was great, though. I, now, again, going back to the misinformation that I started to uh, to impart. Is um, it true, according to your Wikipedia, you invented the sandwich? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> With some. I got all kinds of stuff wrong there. It's just, uh, it's silly, but, but that's all right, you know. And then some days, some somebody who doesn't like me will edit my page and make me into. Uh, a bad guy, and then somebody who likes me will edit it back. So it depends on which show you check, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, he did not dispute the fact that he invented the sandwich. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> kind of uh, def- deflected that. There we go. Shooter does not deny it. Well, right. well, Jim, if not for a, a future you know, autobiography, is there at least some kind of memoirs we can expect? Maybe uh, anything kicking around in the thought process there? Well, when I had my blog a couple of years ago, I put a lot of this stuff down there. And um, uh, I was I had a, some time I wasn't as busy for a while, so I did the blog, and a lot of that, a lot of my stories are there. But um, yeah, I'm gonna. I have a standing offer from a publisher to to do a, pretty much whatever I want, an autobiography or whatever, mm-hmm. and um, and also Image Comics. Uh, Eric Stevenson, basically, he and I, you know, pretty much. We have a bunch of stuff that we we're talking about, so we'll see. All right, you know what? In in the job that you had, was there something or things that you can recall as being best part of the job or least favorite, worst thing you had to do as the job without you know revealing too much? No, the best part of the job was working with the creative people. You know, like you know, maybe you didn't have to <clears throat> tell Larry Hama anything. You didn't have to tell Louise anything. Tell Archie anything. You know, they know what they're doing. So you spend time with the, like the, the younger people, and that was fun. And also with the creative people in general and the, doing creative work. That was the, that was the, the great great fun of it. The the part that was less fun was dealing with the bean counters and the bureaucrats and the lawyers upstairs, which is just sort of necessary. And I think that's the one skill I had that uh, a lot of my five predecessors did not. Uh, Roy Thomas, smartest guy you'll ever meet. You know, Archie Goodman, same thing. You know, other guys, but but they were all creative guys, and they didn't want to deal with that stuff. You know, and I had been trained a little bit at DC, and so I, I realized that you got to speak their language, you got to show them how they make money, doing whatever it is you want them to do, and you've got to uh, um, uh, have patience. I mean, Archie, if he talked to a lawyer or a licensing person, his eyes plays over you know i mean he's he couldn't stand the bureaucrats and the bean counters and stuff that's why when i got archie back i said i'll handle that i'll, I'll pave the road you know you just do the book and he he agreed that's i think it's why he came back but um he uh uh you know i mean he, he didn't like that stuff well i was doing it for the comics anyway so i just did, did it for half the comics too you know rather than stick him with it now, in regards to just, you know, the, the business dealings and whatnot you would do, uh, I had spoken also, again, with Chad from Horror Movie Barbecue in regards to 
the work you did at Valiant and like the early stuff when you guys had the WWF license. And he had mentioned that you guys had a meeting with uh, Vince and Linda McMahon. Like, how did that come about? Well, the way it came about is that my evil partner, um, uh, it was right shortly after we started the company, after we got financed, he started sleeping with a banker. And uh, so between his stock and the stock that the, the venture capital firm, her, her venture capital firm owned, they had me outvoted on the board. My evil partner, Steve Masarski, was a lawyer. He was, in fact, an entertainment lawyer. He was uh, on retainer by Nintendo as a lawyer for media and entertainment. And so while I already had my superheroes all teed up and ready to go, he decides we're doing Nintendo comics. He makes a little deal with himself, both sides of the table, and uh, he gets a big fat fee, and I'm doing Nintendo comics. And if I refuse, you know, okay, if I quit or something, well, what happens? Janet Jackson, John Perlin, a bunch of other people who come there to work for me. All of a sudden, they're on the street. So I thought, well, I'll try to make it work. And if I can make it work and make a little money, I can raise money and buy the turkey out. So that didn't work. Well, guess who else you represented? World Wrestling Federation. Mm-hmm. And so the next thing you know, I'm doing wrestling comics. Now, well, there's good things about each of them, and we tried our best. That was not likely to succeed. And yeah, I had many meetings with Vincent Linda, and, and a lot of met a lot of the wrestlers. And all that. you know, Vincent took us to a show, and he showed us how the ring worked and everything. And it was, uh, you know, it was uh, interesting. I mean, and I, I, I not it's not like I didn't enjoy it, or there wasn't some good, good things about it. Steve Ditko did some marvelous work on that stuff, and because uh, uh, I got him to work for me at Valiant, and. Uh, uh, but that's that wasn't the mission. We so we we didn't do do well with uh, either of those things, um, except that I guess I got to meet some people and get to know people and stuff. Um, they said they were other than that they were a disaster. And when we finally got to do our superheroes. We uh, we in about nine months we took a seventeen percent market share. Most of that came out of Marvel's height. That's why one of the reasons they don't like me. Um, but. Uh, uh, we, you know, I mean, we, we, uh, I did what I had to do, keep to keep the company alive, to keep going, to get to, to get to the place where I could do what I came there to do and, and swing for the fences. And when it came to, you know, acquiring the licenses and everything, uh, Magnus, Robot Fighter, and Solar, how did that come about? All right, well, see, Marvel was being sold toward the end of my time there. When a company's being sold, the people who own it, six people owned Cadence Industries, which owned Marvel. And those six people, um, uh, they didn't want to invest any money. They had the, the new universe had a good funding, and they took it all away. And we, had, we were literally doing it for free after work on staff. Me, assistant editors, and Archie Goodwin. And, uh, uh, you know, I, you know they, they, they were... They just wanted to line their pockets. That was their that was their mission. <clears throat> so, um, uh, where, what was the question again? <laughs> uh, like, how Sorry. did you guys get the rights to like the gold oh the key rights? Characters? All right. So one of the guys that tried to buy Marvel when they were trying to sell it was the man who owned uh, I think maybe some percent of Western Publishing. That's the little Golden Books people. Mm. They're printing plants all over the country. Very successful company. His name was Richard Bernstein, and he came and did, uh, he brought his lawyers and accountants, and they did their due diligence, 
is what it's called. And part of that was that he wanted to meet with the key people, and I was a key man. That's actually a technical term. And uh, so I, I was a key man. He met with me, I think, three times. And uh, he had met with the other the Marvel executives. I was the vice president. He met with the other ones, and uh, he thought they were idiots. <laughs> and he told me so. He said, he said, the last time I had a meeting with him, he said, it's one of the best things I've ever said to me. He said, sometimes I think what I'm buying here is you and a bunch of used furniture. <laughs> he didn't mean me. He meant us, the publishing area. We were the only thing that was doing well. Everybody else was just floundering around. So anyway, um, after uh, I forced him to fire me from Marvel, I, I needed a gig. And I, I, I called him up. And I said, uh, could I have a meeting with him? He said, sure. So I went to his office and I said, you know, some, you know, you want some really good comic book characters. He said, I do. He said, why aren't we publishing them? I said, well, I don't know about that. You know, anyway, his, uh, he talked to some of his executives and they were sincerely not interested in publishing comics. So he said to me, all right, I'll license. I don't want to fight with these guys. I'll license them to you. And I said, well, I don't have any money yet. You know, it's not like I have a publishing company sitting here waiting for characters. He said, I'll hold them for you. He held them for two years, okay, and during which a bunch of adventures, that's right, to buy Marvel, all kinds of things. But he held them for two years. He got big offers from Marvel, from DC, from Dark Horse, other people, and he held them for me. His licensing guy called me up every week. Are you going to give up on this yet? No, I'll do it. And uh, and so finally, you know, I, I saw him at the ABA and I said, Richard, I'm ready. And he, he said, Pizer's, that was his licensing guy's name. He said, Pizer's, make a deal with this guy. And Pizer says, deal about what? <laughs> and he says, do whatever he says. <laughs> so I named my own deal. I said, look, we have not a lot of money up front. But we'll make the back end rich. And if we win, we all win. So I had all those characters and uh, brought that to the table with the deal. And so we were able to close the funding. And we started a variant. I just didn't know my partner was sleeping with a banker. So. In a Forbes magazine found that so outrageous, by the way. They usually didn't care about small market cap companies. Uh -huh. They found it so outrageous. They actually did an article in Forbes. And the title of the article is, How Not to Start a Company, or What Do You Do When You Find Out Your Partner is Sleeping with the Banker? The answer to that question is you get screwed, but go on. Uh, as as we're talking and stuff, I'm thinking of a different idea, possibly. I don't know if it, if, if it relates over to what you've done throughout the years, but I know that, for example, in music with upcoming singers and artists and so on, and then they rattle off who they took after, their role models, their influences. Was there anybody in particular, whether it be in comics or in life, that you aspired to be like or, or wanted to say, you know, I'd like to do the way somebody's doing this? And how you well, in comics, I'd have to say it was Stan, Jack, you know, the, the old guys. Uh, in life, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I just tried to be the best person I could be. Mm -hmm. Now, also, we have additional questions over from the Cartoonist Kayfabe Rinkside Seats group, again, on Facebook. Uh, some of the questions, one of which really got me. I was very interested in this one. And they're using a fake name for this. But you'll know, or not you'll know, but Matt Murdock wants to know. Okay. 
Did you ever try to recruit indie guys like Eastman and Laird, Dave Sim, and Bob Burton? What was that process like? Well, Eastman and Laird used to bring samples up to the office once in a while, and they just weren't very good, okay? And so we like, politely declined a number of times. Then uh, one year with their you know, tax return money, they, they decided to publish their own book, and they did a parody of X-Men and Daredevil, which teenage mutants, right? sex men. Daredevil was, Frank kind of made him into a ninja. The turtles part, I'm not sure. But you, you think about it. I mean, uh, Daredevil's teacher was Stick. Their teacher was Splinter. The Daredevil fought the clan of the hand. They fought the clan of the foot. Uh, you know, I mean, it was, it was all, it was a parody. Well, and because they picked the right things to parody, the two number, number one or two books in comics, it sold pretty well. And then they, they kind of I know the licensing people, uh, um, uh, let's see, what was it, the Freedmans, um, uh, Renee Friedman and, doesn't matter, but uh, um, uh, Mark and Renee Friedman, they, they uh, hooked up with uh, Eastman and Laird, and they, they pitched it as a grassroots phenomenon, the Playmates toys, got a toy deal, got an animation thing, guess what, took off. Most of the things people know about the Turtles come from the animators. Um, pizza, cowabunga, you know, all that stuff. Um, but uh, whatever. I mean, they, they had the germ of the idea, and boy, it grew like Topsy. It was, it was interesting seeing that. Sim got to know the guy. Claremont was interested in working with him. I think we did eventually, in Epic, do something with him. Um, it was talked a lot about maybe doing some kind of crossover team-up or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, I, mean, he, I got to know him pretty well. He was a good guy. I know with, uh, I've heard over the years there was a rumor of a uh, Cer- uh, Cerebus and X-Men crossover. Like, it was rumored. Yeah, yeah Claremont wanted to do that. And I don't know how they were going to work that out. And it just didn't happen. I don't know. Um, I don't think there was, you know, some specific reason why. I think everybody was busy and just didn't come around on a guitar. But we were willing. I was willing. I would have signed it. It's such a bizarre idea, but it would have been, you know, again, very cool to see. Hey, Claremont did... Spider-Man meets the not ready for primetime players. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Claremont had figured out a way to have meat ribs going. Well, why not? Sir? Okay, whatever. I mean, I, yeah, stuff like that was fun. And uh, you know, if a guy was interested in doing it, and it, it seemed like it might be fun and different, we did it. We were Marvel Comics. If we couldn't experiment, who could? We were seventy percent of the market. I'm selling DC five to one. You know, I, I mean, we were on a roll. So, uh, you know, I like, like the swing for the fences, guys. You know, let's, let's, let's do some interesting stuff. And during the 1980s, you know, there, it's known for the uh, black and white explosion boom. And were there any, like, talents out there that you guys saw that, you know, you wanted to bring over? Well, you know, see, we, we were part of the cause of that because, because when the, the direct market started about the same time I became editor-in-chief, I became aware because uh, I'd see on the print orders this number, Seagate, like 200 copies so of this book or that book. And I started to keep track of it because the circulation guy explained to me he was selling directly a deep discount to this guy, Phil Sewing. I said, all right. So uh, Chuck Rosansky came to visit us, and he, he said, are you aware of this thing? It's called the direct market. I said, well, funny, you should ask. Took out all my spreadsheets, and, and he said, oh, okay. Well, anyway, he was there to try to get Marvel to make it into a business because it, it's actually illegal. You can't give one guy an exclusive just because he's your crony. You know, you can't do that. And so he had an 11-point plan 
I got him together with the president of the company, and by the time he left that day, we had enacted 10 of his 11 points. And so it, it, the direct market started to, to take off. And D.C. was going to be first, and then they backed away because they were afraid they might piss off their newsstand guys. We thought, let's go for it. This business is dying. You know, and so uh, so we, we were first in there. And then we were. I also got better editors and better writers, paid them more and got some benefits and rights and royalties and all that stuff. And so people, word spread, you can make money at Marvel. People start showing up. All of a sudden the books are better. So the sales were taken off. Well, better books help the stores sell better, you know, and then uh, thrive. Um, the more stores there were, the more books we sold. The more books we sold, the higher the royalties were, more guys show up. You know, it was like a happy little uh, uh, thing there. And, and, of course, in D.C., too. I mean, the, even though we had swept to the top of the market, D.C. had grown, too. They, 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 um, they used to have 30%, and then they, the market share fell to 18%, but 18% was a lot bigger than 30% used to be, mm. you know, because the market had grown. And, uh, and they start fighting back. They're doing Watchmen and Dark Knight and all, you know, they're, they're, they're trying. So the whole business was kind of taken off. Well, now that there were direct, there was like 10,000 direct market stores, a lot of these little publishers who, you know, no way they could deal with the newsstand, which is corrupt and stupid. Um, but the direct market provided them a venue where they could sell their little black and white book. So all of a sudden you got Cerebus, ElfQuest, Distant Soil, you can name more than I can. Uh, it's the Turtles, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's there, we, all these people started to go and started to thrive. And yeah, a lot of them, you know, uh, we, we thought were, were good. And, and we did get a few people from, from those, those things. And, uh, we tried to help them. We tried to help them. We tried to help. help uh, I helped uh, First Comics get started. Uh, Rick Obadiah came to license uh, uh, something. He got real interested in direct market. I sat him down and explained it to him for three days. Then he went off and started First Comics. People said, why are you helping him start First Comics? I said, if we can't win against anyone, we don't deserve it. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> we're trying to save this industry. The more, the merrier. Build, build it. Grow it. Segment the market. The Pacific Comics guys showed up in my office, the Shannish Brothers. They were already a distributor, and they said they wanted to start publishing. I said, okay, let me show you how. And they went off and started Pacific Comics. They did some good stuff. And so anyway, you know, the whole thing was, we turned it around. Not just me, not just Marvel, everybody. We all turned it around. And, uh, and yeah, there were some great people. Wendy Peeney did some stuff uh, through Epic. Um, uh, uh, distant soil. What, what's her name? Colleen Duran. Uh, mm-hmm. She did some stuff for us. Um, yeah, some the people would show up, you know, and, and uh, some of them were tremendous, and you know they'd been a success as a, a indie publisher, and wanted, you know, now they want to do Spider-Man. Okay, sure. You know, it's fine. It's like they were. It's like the independent guys were like our farm club. You know, guys would show up from there, and that was fine. Well, this has gotten me thinking, too, as to what time period. I, and I don't even know if we actually ever asked anybody else we've spoken to as to when, whenabouts, maybe it was in the 80s, that the comic book store came to be its own thing as previously, you know, like you mentioned, newsstand or on spinner racks that would be part of a convenience store type of thing. I remember that growing up when I was like 10 years old. That's where I would get comic books. And then here comes eventually the comic book store. Do you recall whenabouts that might have been? Yeah, sure, because it was still sewing, and there were, there were little shops here and there around the 
New York area that were like fallback issues and stuff. I mean, they, they couldn't get the new issues. The IDs wouldn't service them. Okay, so Phil made a little crony deal with Ed Shukin, who was the circulation director at Marvel. And Shukin was basically selling comics out the back door. And when I, I asked him, I said, what's this number Seagate here? And he, he closed the door. He said, ah, it's just, you know, I'm just doing a little extra volume. It's just, you know, it's deep discount, giving them to this guy Phil. He puts them in little back issue shops here and there. I said, oh, okay. Well, anyway, after Chuck... And lots of other people were involved. You know, we dragged it out of the closet, opened it up. We published trade terms. Anybody who could meet the minimums could be a distributor. Overnight, we have 18 distributors. And you know what? It didn't hurt Phil. It made it better. Because all these distributors creating all these comic shops, the number of comic book shops went up. The number of comic book shops selling a lot went up. And so Phil was prospering. We used to fly in all the distributors to a location like in Florida or something, Orlando. And he'd keep put them up for a few days and sit down with them and, and go over, what can we do to help? How can we make it better? You know, or what do you want from us? And, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we knew that, that was, we were building something wonderful there. And, and uh, uh, you know, like I said, everybody was involved. It wasn't just us. But, uh, uh, you know, we, we uh, so, the, so the whole direct market, it's probably, you could say, 78 started a little bit before me, but it was so tiny, it didn't count. 78 is where it really started to take off. Mm-hmm. By, in a year or two, there were lots of comic book shops thriving. There were 18 distributors. Uh, things were you know, really starting to boom. By the, I don't know, 83 or something, it was huge. Um, it just kept growing for a while, and people ruined it. But anyway. And as a kid growing up, were there, and even now, compare and contrast, if, if this is uh, where I'm getting at, too, did you have any favorite characters then and maybe now? Well, I, I you know, when I was a kid, my favorite character was Spider-Man, I have to say that. Um, you know, and then when I'm running the place, it was like, you know, like, which is your favorite child? I mean, I was, you know, I was concerned about all of them. I mean, when Thor wasn't doing well, uh, we, we got Walt, and he, he made Thor great. You know, he he, he, he didn't reboot it he didn't start from number one not that i would have let him mm-hmm. he just made it good and and that's what our mark theory was so for a while there thor was my favorite character <laughs> um but uh you know and then after after i was publishing on my own you know i had i had harbinger i really enjoyed harbinger solar um created exo and and i i, I wrote a, some of that early issues and uh um uh, you know, like that. Um, what else? I don't know. I had a piece of everything, and I, and they were like, they were like really mine, and I, I, you know, uh, love them, and the ones I did at Oak Defiant and Broadway. Um, it's hard to pick one of those that's a favorite. Maybe Harbinger. And you know, with the Valiant Universe, it's very interesting seeing the whole. Uh, they were going to attempt to do a cinematic universe, and I guess right now with everything going on, everything's put on hold, but. If you had the ability to do so, who would you have picked to be the, you know, the starter of the Valiant Cinematic Universe? Oh, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, would, I think what their first one was a Bloodshot. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, whoever did that, no thanks. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's hard for me to say. I'll tell you who, who would probably do a good 
superhero movie? Who? Um, uh, 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 Mike DeLuca. Mike DeLuca is now at Amblin. He used to be at um, uh, New Line. And then now he's at Amblin Entertainment, which is one of Spielberg's companies. But Mike DeLuca is a big comic fan. He did The Mask when he was at New Line. And he did some other comics-related stuff. He once stood in line an hour to get my autograph, he told me. And uh, I was like, wow. What was that? Um, so I think if he really got a chance to do one and swing for the fences, it would be like the mask only a hundred times better because technology has gotten so good. I'm going to tell you, Jim, I think if, you know, if and when we get to see you at a show, waiting an hour for your signature would be a, <laughs> would be a common thing. So I, I would you. be I would be on that line. If not that, a photograph. I, you know, hopefully not. You know. Yeah, my signature's free, so I'm charge. Oh, okay. Now, in regards, also, again, you mentioned Spider-Man being your favorite character. With Spider-Man, of course, we have the uh, the two the two dads of Spider-Man, Steve Ditko and Stan Lee. This question comes over from the cartoonist Cafe Brinkside Seats. Peter Hensel asks, "What was Steve Ditko's relationship to Marvel like when he was freelancing in the '80s? He had heard Ann Nascenti had to shut the door on him talking a lot." And it, you know, made this person think Steve wasn't so reclusive during you know your time there. No, Steve was. Steve would talk to you all day. Steve was chatty and he was nice and everything. And the trouble was, I think the reason Ann closed the door is because, you know, uh, it was, everybody wanted to talk to Steve, and so Steve would be like sort of holding court, and it was outside her door. She needed to concentrate. I don't blame her. But uh, the way that happened was. Uh, Neil Adams used to have this enormous studio, and he would rent studio space to various artists, like uh, Howard Chaikin and Jack Abel shared a studio space there. Other people had studio space. So, uh, and, and because of, there were already a lot of comic book guys at Neil's studio, and there's Neil and everything, uh, that became like a little hangout place. I mean, after work, you know, hey, let's go over to the continuity. Okay. So we went over to continuity sometimes. One time I was there, and I see this guy, that's Steve Ditko, you know? And uh, so I walked over and introduced myself, and he was perfectly nice to me. And I said, I said, you know, Steve, I said, I just want you to know uh, you're a founding father, and <clears throat> um, if if you ever need work, the door is always open at Marvel. And he said, um, he's, I hate Marvel. I said, I don't blame you. I said, I said, but there is, you know, the new sheriff in town. I said, the things are better. We're paying. I've doubled the rates and doubled them in and keep increasing them. It's got, um, you know, benefits and rights and royalties, and it's really pretty good now. You know, we pay all your materials. We pay, you know, your, you pay your phone bill if you call Marvel. We pay your transportation. We pay your postage. And, and uh, he said, no, no, I don't, I'd never do it. I said, okay. Right. Uh, I just want you to know. The door's always open. So when I'd see him once in a while, I'd say, you know, I'd Steve, just reminding you, doors always, no pressure, just reminding you, you know, you're always welcome. I said, you need uh, work, you need anything, call me, you know. And um, so one day, the uh, receptionist calls me and says, there's a Steve Ditko here, do you want to talk to this guy? I said, yes, I want to talk to Steve Ditko. <laughs> I ran out to the reception and brought him back to my office. He sat there and talked for a while, about nothing, you know, I didn't bring up work and neither did he. So finally he says, well, i got to go. And so he goes. And I told her, after Steve left, I said, that man's royalty. And I told her why. 
and and uh, I said, so you you be nice to him, you know. If he shows up again, you know, you need to know who he is, and he needs to be nice. So about a week later, he strolls in again. Receptionist, oh, Mr. Ditko, come right in, you know. And she's all nice, and she gets on the phone and calls my secretary to tell us that Steve is coming back, and um, and she also called every editor in the place. Hey, Steve Ditko's in the house, you know. And so Steve's sitting there talking to me, and all of a sudden, bunches of people come walking into my office. People just always just walked in. Uh, the door was always open. And so all they're, and they just all over Steve. Oh, no, nice to meet you. Or are you going to work for us? Or, you know, and he's all, I don't know, no, no, no. And, uh, but they're talking to him, and they want to show him stuff. And, you know, and everybody was, like, thrilled that Steve was there. But finally, he talks to everybody for a long time. He says, well, guys, i got to go. And he leaves. Um so uh, uh, the next time he comes up, uh, reception streets of Mike Royalty, he comes to my office, sits down, he says, if you have anything interesting, I'll consider it. <laughs> <laughs> so I scrambled around, and I got him a Captain America story, because I knew he'd talk Captain America. And he did. And then before you know it, he's, you know, worked for us pretty regularly. He did ROM, he did Captain Universe, he did some other stuff, I don't remember. Machine Man, maybe, I think. Yep. I don't know. But but he you know he he was like that and people loved him and and he would come up and everybody wanted to talk to him and so I understand he had the shutter door. Great stories I'm telling you and there's a lot more I'm sure you could uh, you could relate. Oh, I got a million of them. Yeah, <laughs> we need it. We need that in a collection. That's for sure, and uh, definitely worth putting getting to see him to get an autograph of that. Sure. And one thing you know when I saw you at New York Comic Con. We had talked about a letter that you had, or a uh, the the from the roast of Stan Lee that you had partaken in, and in that you ended up using that for when Stan had passed, and it was such a yeah. unique story. I actually, went out specifically when you told me about that that it was in in connection. It was also in connection with the uh, the Fantastic Four story that you had worked on with him. And I grabbed well, yeah, I that, grab that, that was, book. Yeah, it was around 86, the, uh, the roast. I don't know what, when the roast was. But when it came to that, you know, what you had talked about, it was, it was very interesting because you were so kind-hearted to Stan, and it's, it shows how much of an impact he truly had on the industry in general. Oh, you, people, people, you know, I, it's hard to believe people underestimate Stan, but he, he was great. Anybody who thinks it was... Oh, it was all Kirby and Stan just wrote some snappy patter. They, 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 I worked with those guys. I worked with all of them. And believe me, Stan was the man. He, he, he was the one who was, I'm not, you don't have to take anything away from Kirby or Ditko. Nobody needs to pad their resumes. But anybody who thinks Stan wasn't the, 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 the linchpin of that mob, they're, they're, they're wrong. Jim, a lot of great stuff there again. Thank you so much for your time and sharing all that with us. Oh, yeah, anytime, guys. And once again, thank you as well from myself. This has been an absolute blast, and I appreciate every contribution you have made for the industry. Oh, thank you. That's nice to say. It covers all the bases. Wow, way to go. I try. (laughs) (laughs) Guy's a pro, you know? Um, Question mark. How dare you, sir? Depends on what arena (laughs) we're talking about. Pro what? (laughs) Bowler. I'm partial to that. I've never bowled in my life, Eddie. <laughs> oh, then you lying piece of... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you guys are having far too much fun. Something's got to change it. Mm-hmm. 
All right. That's so- how it was at Marvel. It was at Marvel every day. It was fun. Mm-hmm. Larry Hammond at the convention recently said, just couldn't wait to get to work every day. Me too. Good to know, yeah. That's why I still do radio for The Marvelist. I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Jim Shooter. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! Obsessed with Marvel with Jim Shooter. I don't think we can go wrong this time. Let's try. Question number 1,488. Ain't which, that great. Oh. Which, please. Which future defender did the Hulk battle in Tales to Astonish number 93? And the year was 1967. Was it Hawkeye, the Submariner, Doctor Strange, or the Silver Surfer? I guess the Surfer. I think it was the Surfer, because I remember seeing a cover with... Uh, well, they, that was about the time they were introducing the Surfer in his own books. They were trying to get Ah, uh, there we go. All right, so let's go with D, Silver Surfer. And that is correct. One for ah. one. It's a great start. I love that. Let the computer think as it chooses the next question. And it's 1,551. Not too many pages to flip, I hope. Let my flipping fingers do the walking. Wait, that's something else. All right, this is a lengthy one because it's got a couple of paragraphs and a photograph, which I guess nobody else can see. Question number 1551. Describe, describe it. It's, uh, it's another Tales to Astonish, actually. When okay. he first appeared in The Incredible Hulk number one, Rick Jones appeared to be in the mold of a hip teenager commonly shown in movies and TV shows of the 1950s and early 60s. He drove his jalopy onto a gamma bomb test site on a dare, unaware of the danger. In pushing the boy into a protective trench just before the explosion, Banner exposed himself to the bomb's intense radiation. That night, the grateful Rick witnessed Banner's first transformation into the Incredible Hulk. From then on, Rick was Banner's loyal friend and confidant, and the Hulk's, although sometimes the Raging Hulk, has rejected him. Over the years, Rick became a sidekick to the Avengers and other heroes, and even tried being a superhero himself, wearing Bucky Barnes' uniform. For a time, he was bonded with Captain Marvell, exchanging places with him between Earth and the Negative Zone. Ultimately, however, Rick always returns to the Hulk series. The question, which hero has Rick Jones not been a sidekick of? Captain America, Daredevil, Rom, or Captain Marvel's son, Janice Vell? If I said that right. Had to be a Daredevil. I'd say Daredevil. Daredevil didn't do sidekicks. Daredevil did Rom did sidekicks? I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I read the whole run on Rom, except for the more recent stuff. So did I, but you know, but, that's a long time ago. Yeah, this is true, too. We're going to need to ring up uh, Aaron Myers, uh, the Rom guy on Twitter. Or Tom Brevoort. Or, <laughs> he's a go-to. All right, so we're going to say Daredevil? Yes. Letter that's B. What I would say. Here we go. And it is correct. Okay. Two for two. I like that. There you go. And the cover is Tales to Astonish number 77, which has Submariner and Hulk and Rick Jones saying, Bruce Banner is the Hulk, which I guess you might not have known at the time. The thriller you never expected to see. All right. Way to, way to go, Rick. Just, you know, spoil everybody's oh, secrets. We, uh, 1898. Well, it's going to be on the inside front cover anyway, right? At least that's the way I thought they did it. Were they told you that on the issue before that? They don't know they're in a comic. Eight. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know? Oh, okay. Let's... 
I overshot the page, <laughs> so let's go back. 1898. One more page. Here we go. Oh, that was my favorite Phil Collins song. It's one, one more, more night. Oh. You got to get at least one music reference in. That's what we do. 1898. Here we go. It is. What is the name of Daredevil's mother? Choices are Martha. Tr- That's a. No. Daredevil's mother. Trisha, Colleen, Maggie, or Maureen? I think it's Maggie. Yeah. Daredevil's mother. Yeah, mother. because Mother know. Maggie with uh, Born Again. I'm going Maggie. Maggie. I'm thinking Maggie May from uh, Rod Stewart. Anyway, letter C, is it Maggie? Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah, we are, so. We're on a good streak here. Okay. Let's, let's carry on one more. Okay. And we go back to... These numbers are kind of close to each other, thank goodness. 1764. Flip one more. 1764 says, Which classic Marvel monster menaced She-Hulk in the sensational She-Hulk 31 to 33? And the year being 1991. Was it Zemnu the Titan, Sprague the Living Hill, Fin Fang Foom, or Gorgilla? Or is it Gorgilla? Which, uh, which classic Marvel monster menace She-Hulk in Sensational She-Hulk 31 to 33? Again, Zemnu the Titan, Sprague the Living Hill, Fin Fang Foom, or Gorgilla? I think I have the answer. Uh, Byrne was uh, drawing it then, so I have to say Fin Fang Foom. That's where I was going, actually. Honestly and truly. Yeah. Letter C. Let's go for it. Wait a minute. It's not. It says Sprague the Living Hill. Oh, oh, okay. All right, go. Stay that correct. went wrong, but uh, I thought Byrne would have picked him. Anyway. I thought so, too. He's making uh, reoccurrences or reappearances later on in, in time. All right, let's try to end on, if we can, uh, and if we get it wrong again, but let's try to end on a on a correct answer and go down to question five. Almost there. Four, four. Five, four, four. Okay. What is the connection between the supervillain Leapfrog and the superhero wannabe Frogman? They are brothers. They are father and son. They are the same person or none of these. Connection between the supervillain Leapfrog and the superhero wannabe Frogman. They're brothers. They're father and son. They're the same person or none of these. I'll go with father and son, but I'm really guessing. You going with father and son? Yeah. Peter? I agree. I'm lean. I'm leaning to say none of these because they give that answer, and then yeah, a bunch that's, of a bunch that's of a clue, but it's also a, a, a trick. It's a trick. Okay, <clears throat> it could be a trick. Could be a trick. Peter, where are you going? You're going with father and son. I, I said papa and son. You're going with the. I'm going to go and uh, acquiesce or whatever to, to let her be. Here we are. It is correct. Okay. You know, ducks like to quacquiesce. Oh. Good going. Nice round, gentlemen. You guys are drinking. I want some, man. Oh, mine was a Coke Zero, you know. (laughs) 